What's up with the Reggie slander, Waz? Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, man, it's not even slander. It's just like, it's one of those funny things that happens on the basketball internet with, like, the other day, this thing goes around about who was better, Reggie or Scotty. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. That was ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And I'm just And I like Reggie, but that's ridiculous. I agree. I mean, (laughs) come on, man. Like why like why does like come on? Like and you know what it is too. It's part of this well, threes are worth more than two. Right, 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 right. Like, yeah. Whoa. Right. <laughs> There's everybody. That's everybody. That's the whole everybody. community. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you. I learned that in the first grade. Thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I know. But uh, it was fun it was funny listening to y'all talk about it the other day. That was funny. <laughs> I love Reggie, but goddamn. No, no, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Um, you know, I w- the only thing I would say is that you know back in the day they weren't scoring one twenty; they were scoring like ninety one. So yeah, so twenty three points back then was worth good. was worth way more than it is now. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, <laughs> That's for sure. But I got your point. I understand your point. You know, for sure. If he does that, what he did against the Knicks against. Uh, Detroit, we're not having this conversation. I'm sure that's there's probably a lot of truth to that. So come on. All right, I'm gonna dial them up right now. Ready? Okay, sounds good. Calling, David. We're gonna talk about like the Mavs season at all. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. I mean, that'll be that'll certainly be part of it. You know, like where they pick up, how they pick up. Okay. Hello, uh, Mr. Carlisle. This is Jade Hoy with David Aldrich. You're making this sound very so. I'm just trying to be professional. <laughs> Rick, I told him, Rick's all right. You can talk to him. He's all right. <laughs> yeah, I'm all right. This is a special team. This is the most special team that I've ever been around because it's not about what you can't do. It's about what you can do. Let's bring D.A. into the conversation here. Welcome to Who Comma is Jason on the Athletic Podcast Network. I turned it on and I heard Shaq with the barbs and just like the bullshit and braggadocio. I was transported right back into it. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I think I rap better than Shaq. David, David Aldridge. Oh, he's totally playing. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then he got their lungs out in front of everybody on TV. Michael was not your friend. So the Chicago and Detroit stuff, that was real. That was real. I mean, God forbid we don't have scholarship money so we can't pay for the charters for the water polo <laughs> in Iowa. Hoops and Jason. Welcome to Hoops Five, Four. We have ignition. And welcome to another edition of Hoops Adjacent. I'm David Aldridge. In D.C., I am social distancing. In L.A., my man Waz Lambray. Waz, how are you, sir? I'm good, man. Just doing the same, staying at the house, washing my hands, tired of cooking, but, you know, we're here. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Later on, after after our guest, we're going to talk about that whole Reggie Scotty Pippen thing, man. That's what's kind of funny. I kind of enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't, we don't want to keep our guest uh, any longer. He's got a lot on his plate, and we appreciate the time for Rick Carlisle, the head coach of the Dallas Mavericks. Rick, how you doing, sir? I'm well, David. Hope you're doing well. Hope your family's doing well. Hope everyone's doing well. We are. We're hanging in there, Rick. We're hanging in there. Um, uh, first, first and foremost, though, wanted to ask you just what your level of optimism is that we're going to indeed resume play at some point, uh, and uh, what your level of concern is about that. 
Well, I am optimistic. You know, it just it just feels like things are moving in 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 what I would characterize as a generally good direction in terms of you know our ability to test, control an environment, and things like that. Uh, you know, I have no absolute knowledge of anything, but I do know there's a great desire of the players to want to return to playing games and 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 getting into you know a playoff format of some sort. On the coaching side, it's it's been challenging. But I really feel like, you know, coaches in the NBA are just extremely resourceful people, creative, and they find things to do and, and ways to get better during a period like this where you're really sitting at home. If I had a dollar for every Zoom call that I've done in the last uh, nine weeks, hmm. but we've learned a lot. You know, we've had Zoom calls with everybody from, you know, Phil Jackson to Fr- Terry Francona to try to learn new things, you know, about communicating and, uh, and about coaching and, and, and all the things that, that go into being successful. Rick, I said, you know, um, footage of Tillman Fertitta, I always mess up the guy's name, but he, he <laughs> him and a bunch of restaurateurs went up to talk to the president about ways to get, you know, restaurants back opened up. And obviously, like, these people want to get back to business. Have you guys gotten a sense that that the players are also very, you know, enthusiastic about coming back? Is that the sense that you guys have gotten? I don't think there's any doubt that the players are very motivated to play, but also very smart guys. And and they understand that we're in a very serious part of our history and that things need to be handled the right way. And I know the, the league is, has had a lot of dialogue with the Players Association and the leadership of the Players Association. As a coaches association, you know, we've, we've been in a lot of um, communication with the league uh, we had a Zoom call with our team two days ago, you know, and, and talked about kind of where we were and, you know, if and when the facility reopened, what it might look like and what it would probably look like with uh, a lot of new precautions and so forth. And the fact that, you know, we, we all understand we're, we're living in a new in a new time right now and that we have to proceed with uh, with great uh, awareness, great caution and great respect for everything that's going on. Rick, along those lines, you you are the president of the Coaches Association. You represent, you know, a a wide spectrum of coaches. But one of the things that I I was curious about, and we talked to Doc Rivers about this a couple of weeks ago on the show, um, you know, there are a lot of older coaches in the league. And obviously, we all know that, that COVID has a disproportionate impact on older people. And so... You know, how, how do you weigh that as, as someone who has to advocate for coaches and does a great job of advocating for coaches, you know, across the board, but also knowing that, that some of your guys, if they come back, you know, could be at higher risk than other guys? Well, I think the reality is that COVID is a threat to anyone uh, of any age profile. It's, it's had crazy effects on small children, elementary school children, teenagers. It's hit everybody on some level. With respect to the term, quote unquote, older coaches, uh, I know one thing that, you know, our coaches are very unique people. They do, they're highly motivated. They do a lot of things to, to take as good a care of themselves as possible. The NBA season is a grueling season. And so virtually everybody does the things that you need to do um, to be successful in that kind of environment. And, and a lot of that has to do with working out, staying in great shape, eating well, you know, awareness of, of dietary things, all that kind of stuff. 
And so while I understand the uh, reason for bringing it up, you know, I, I don't I don't think that it's the kind of thing that uh, should just be pointed toward guys that are older or that coach NBA teams. Uh, I think we've got to be respectful of the fact that this is something that's that's hit everybody. Coach, um, th- th- what's been floated out there is that there will be, I think, a three-week ramp-up before a potential season would start back up. Do you think that's enough time for a sort of training camp to for guys' bodies to readjust to that level of, you know, um, fatigue and, and, and what have you? Um, is that enough time, do you think? If, it's, if it is indeed three weeks, we'll, we'll make sure it's the right amount of time. You know, that's just how you got to do it. I know this, that, you know, coming out, you know, having been through two lockouts, one in 99 and the one in 2011, you know, the one in 99, we came out of that one and we had about a, a seven day training camp, two exhibition games with the same team. And within 10 days, we were playing games, you know, headed toward, it was either a 50 or a 66 game season. I forget which it was, but. 50. In 99, it was 50. Yeah, it was 50. So, and then and there were also at least one or two sets of three consecutive games in three nights, you know, which I don't think would ever happen again. And so if you look at it from that perspective, <laughs> you know, three weeks compared to 10 days mm-hmm. seems like an awful long time. And I know a lot of the majority of players right now that are sitting and waiting are working out and they're doing a lot of things to stay ready. There's going to be, I would have to believe some level of, of uniformity with with how we all approach this. Um, I think the first week is going to look different than a, than a typical training camp. We don't know it's three weeks. We don't know an exact date, but we're, we're, we're an adaptive, you know, uh, business and we're going to adapt and we're going to do the right things and, and we're going to get back to thriving the way we always have. You know, you have to get ready for this season, but it's going to be so late. You know, the time off, no matter when they restart, assuming they do restart, is going to be so much more limited uh, before the start of next season. And I know you're going to worry about next season when that comes, but does it affect your preparation at all, knowing that your guys are not going to have the time off when their season ends, whenever it ends, that they would have in a normal off season? Well, that is true. And once again, we're, we're speculating here because we don't know the exact timetables. But right. if you look at it on a big picture basis, and it's important to do this. So March 11th was the last game, and we happened to play in the last game. You know, we played Denver at home. March 12th yeah. was the first day of the hiatus. And today, it's you know we're into the latter, latter part of May. So you know, we've gone over two months really with no activity. And so this has been like a summer vacation already. During this kind of period of a rate of a normal summer, players are going to be doing a lot of the same things that, that they've been doing during the hiatus. I mean, they're going to be doing uh, different modalities to to maintain conditioning, et cetera. So let's say we get into a, the remainder of the season in some sort of a playoff format that lasts for, you know, two, two and a half months. Well, then that's two and a half months. We haven't played a an eight, you know, a, a six month NBA season. And then, and then we would go to another presumably two month or so break before the season would start. I think if you look at the big picture, it probably sets up even better for the start. If the, if the season is going to, you know, the new season is going to restart sometime in, in December, which a lot of people are speculating. Right. 
it, it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the elongated all-star break and in some of the good things that that's brought, I don't have great concerns about that, David. And I, and I really do believe that we have such smart people in our league from owners to presidents, to GMs and players. I mean, you know, look, the players association, you know, a lot of what happens is going to be determined by, you know, their, their communication with the league as well. And we're going to find a way to make this work. I just wanted to ask you about this season because um, I know for me personally, not that I thought you guys were going to stink or anything, but I think you guys were way more successful than I anticipated. And that was, you know, with a bunch of injuries to key players, um, you guys managed to put out the one of the best offenses in the league at times, setting a record-setting pace for offensive efficiency. Um, specifically with the with the offense, what do you think was the biggest contributor, um, Rick, to your offensive success this season? Our brain trust did a great job of, of signing guys that, that fit into what we plan to do with uh, Luka Doncic, with Kristaps Porzingis. Uh, Seth Curry was a guy that really enhanced our situation. DeLon Wright, Marjanovic has, has been a guy, you know, the guy last game played before the I hate is he had 31 points and 17 rebounds, you know, and, and was a monster. But look, a lot of this starts with Doncic and, and Porzingis. I mean, you're talking about two guys that are long range threats that drive the ball, that can pass and make plays and get guys good looks at shots and threes. You know, we were able to create a lot of high shot value opportunities. You know, a lot of this in the NBA, the success of the team comes down to who your best players are. Coming out of the hiatus, you know, the majority of our emphasis is going to be to continue to improve defensively. You know, we started out the season somewhere in the 20s rank-wise. We're, we're now up in the, the sort of the middle rank of all the teams in the league, and we want to keep moving up. And our goal is to get in the top 10. Rick, uh, speaking of, of Boban and 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 Luca and Kristaps, uh, are they all in, back in the states, or are they still in their in their home countries in Europe? I can't get into that because that's private information. But mm-hmm. um, you know, when we get started back up, they'll be ready to go. That's what I can tell you. Right. No, I was just concerned because of the you know obviously there's issues with with some of the European countries that were implemented in January. Um, so that's why I was asking. But let me ask you this about. Uh, Doncic as well. You, you were quoted as saying, you know, he got a lot better when you got when you stopped being stupid and put him on the ball. <laughs> so um, I was curious. It, this is such an era where where there's so much information available to to coaches every day. How does one avoid overthinking things when you have so much information and statistics and numbers to kind of guide you toward a decision? You know, when he came, when he got here. And started playing pickup games in the fall of uh, 2018. It was clear to me that he was a point guard. Yeah, you know he was going to be best when he did have the ball. And so you know we started the season out. We had him and Dennis Smith playing together, and they played very well together. But they're both point guards, you mm-hmm. know. And and Dennis Dennis had always been a point guard, and I'm presuming that Luca has been a point guard most of his career. But it, but it was clear that that you know. Luca was the guy that, that, that needed the ball. So one thing led to another and, um, you know, the opportunity to do the trade with the Knicks came up. Yeah. It got us, you know, a, a guy in Porzingis that's, you know, seven foot three that has just such a wide ranging skill set and has great de- uh, defensive impact as well as offensive impact. We like Tim Hardaway and yeah. ever since Tim Hardaway has gotten 
gotten healthy. I mean, he's been he's been a phenomenally good for us this year. And another guy that nobody talks about that we got in this trade is Courtney Lee. Now, if anybody would have guessed that Courtney Lee would still be on our roster, you know, right. A, right. after the tra- after the after the trade deadline of right. 2020, I mean, they would have been laughed at. You know, that New York trade has been a trade that's been really good on on multiple levels for us. And everybody that we got in the trade, I believe, is still with us and still in a in a in a capacity that's really um, has really helped us win games. Rick, for the past two or three years, uh, the Mavs have been not excuse me, the past four or five years, even longer than that, the Mavs have been like bottom two, bottom three in the league in offensive rebounding. And this season, you guys jumped up to 11th. Um, what do you attribute that change of philosophy to? Well, the last couple of years, we have gotten more aggressive with offensive rebounding because we have some guys that are really have a knack for it. Dorian Finney-Smith is one of the best pound-for-pound offensive rebounders that I've ever seen. Cleaver, Powell, Porzingis, Doncic, DeLon Wright is a really good offensive rebounder. You know, we've turned those guys loose a little bit. Um, some of it is is based on some analytic information, and and some of it is, hey, you gotta you gotta you know sometimes you gotta jump in the pool, you know, to see how deep the water is. Now, you know, this league has been very much a hey, get four guys back on defense league, but but in recent years, more teams are crashing guys, and you know, if you study the league top to bottom, you'll see that it's becoming a trend where there's way more than there is less of offensive rebounding. And it's, it's, it's added some really interesting elements to the game. I think it's increased the number of three point shots because your best chance for a good three is often um, after an offensive rebound, you know, the, 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 the defense is scattered and guys, guys run to the line and get in the vision of the guy that rebounded. And then, then poof, all of a sudden you got a wide open three point shot. And those are ones that have a very good sh- shot value because, uh, most times they're wide open and you're stepping straight into the shot instead of, you know, stepping a little sideways or having to stop and stop, catch and shoot type thing, you know, on, on the break or whatever. So, and, and again, a lot of these things are going to be based upon the abilities of your personnel. Rick, you were uniquely qualified to uh, talk about, I think, the impact of, of Jordan in the last dance. Uh, you, you played against him as a player. You obviously coached against him at a very high level. Uh, throughout your coaching career, and I saw the the junior NBA event that, that you were at, where you said you really you really wanted today's players to to watch that to see what what Jordan was like. What what do you hope they took from watching that in terms of him and in terms of his impact? Well, I just really felt that you know having been fortunate to play during that period. You know, I came in the league as a player in the fall of 84, which is when Michael came in as well. You know, he was a junior at Carolina. I was a senior from Virginia. You know, I'd actually played against him in college for two years. You know, I came to a Boston team and got lucky to make it. It was a team that had won the 84 championship. And then we were in the, we were in the finals the next three years, 85, 86, and 87, the three years that I was there. And during the, um, 85, 86 season, you know, is when Michael had the 49 and then 63 point games against us. That was his second year, my second year in the league. And, you know, if you watch the last dance, you'll see that I was actually guarding him some in that that series, which, (laughs) which was, uh, you know, which, which had, which had mixed results to say the least. um, I think the thing that was really interesting about the series as a whole was that 
to me, it's all about the obsession to win championships. I mean, and you just see Michael live it and you see him talk about it. Look, we knew it. I mean, you know, back in those days, he was not talking publicly. He was, he didn't like the way people were saying that he couldn't make players better and couldn't win championships and stuff like that. The truth was he didn't have the team. He didn't have the team around him yet. You know, I mean, you get pieces, you know, kind of as time went along. Things took shape over time. I mean, these things don't happen overnight. It's very, very rare. But this thing was all about the obsession with winning. And he doesn't talk about it in the series that much that about legacy. But during that era, you know, the dominant teams and the dominant players of that era, Bird, Magic Johnson, Isaiah Thomas, and then uh, uh, ultimately Michael, you know, these guys knew that their ultimate legacy was going to be about the number of rings. Yeah. And that's something that, that I think is, is such a great message to, they, to today's players. Because back in those days, you know, you didn't have social media. You didn't have a lot of the, of the distractions. You didn't have the same amount of money that was being thrown around um, the shoe deals, you know, some of the big players had them, but now there's just so much more money and so much, so much else going on that you can, you can find other things to do than to obsess, you know, about, about a championship ring or about winning two in a row or three in a row or six out of eight, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. And look, you know, I saw dirt go through it. You know, I, I came to Dallas um, in the fall of 2008. It was two years removed from, you know, their loss to Miami in 2006. And the mandate was, hey, look, Dirk's got four or five really good years left. We got to get this done somehow, you know. Mm-hmm. And Mark Cuban and Donnie Nelson, you know, they found a way. And the way was to keep tweaking the roster. And then develop, eventually, you know, we did the big trade with Washington. Right, and they got they got us, you know, got us Haywood, Stevenson, and Butler, and then you know the signing of Tyson Chandler created the opportunity for us, and then we had to get hot at the right time, and you know we had to have a special group that had a had a real glue, and so you know that led to our run in 2011 that that got the monkey off Dirk's back. Because look, he 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 felt it, and and I always really respected the fact that he talked freely and openly about how important it was to win. That the critics were harsh, you know. When we won that year, and you know, and the, the buzzer went off, and then he immediately went back to the locker room because he was overcome with emotions. You know, I can understand why. Not only him, but Jason Kidd, you know, another great warrior, David, who you know very well. Sure. Um, Sean Marion was an, it was an amazing player. You know, Jason Terry was, was phenomenal, you know, in those playoffs. And those are, you know, those are, those are Dallas Maverick legends. And I think Dirk's, you know, one of the, one of the real greats of all time. Coach, uh, coach Carla, I want to ask you about 2011 because obviously you guys played the heat, um, which featured LeBron James and Dwayne Wade, but LeBron specifically, because, I don't know how um, active you are on the internet, but there's been a lot of chatter about LeBron and see, he's not as good as Jordan. He's not this, but I want to ask you something, something different because in 2011, and and I don't feel shame to admit this to you, coach, I was somebody who was actually rooting for the heat. 
which was not a very popular thing to be doing at the time, right? Like, it seemed like the whole world was against the Heat. I remember watching, um, I think it was game five uh, at a bar in Brooklyn, and it was me, three of my friends, and about 75 other people, and they were all rooting for you guys. Did you feel like you were delivering a victory for America when you beat the Heat in 2011? <laughs> Listen, we were we were so focused on you know what our process had to be you know to, to even have a chance against those guys that you know uh, the notion of you know delivering a championship for two or three guys sitting in a bar in Brooklyn on a given <laughs> night you know was not, was not something that was crossing my mind. But you know it, it's it speaks to a little bit. Um, you know, what Michael went through. I mean, when they put that group together in Miami, you know, the thought was that this was an instant championship. And it, it turned out that, you know, it took a year. And then they won two, and then they then they lost one. But they won two out of four, which is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. But it's not as simple as just putting a group together and saying we're a championship team. you got to go through things, you know. And here in Dallas, Dirk and Jason Terry – you know, they had to go through the pain of, of 2006 to get to 2011 and, and have a slightly, well, I've had quite a different roster, but to get in, into the moment where you had a chance for redemption. Same way that, you know, Michael Jordan wasn't, wasn't going to become an NBA champion overnight because he wasn't going to have the team around him. You know, Miami, Miami went through the same thing, you know, and, and, and Dallas, it's in this franchise originated in 1980, you know, and it took them a lot of years, you know, for, for a real opportunity to win a championship. And there was, there were two of them in five years, you know, one was unsuccessful and the other one was, uh, you know, it, it was a feeling that, that will never be duplicated around here. We've talked so much about 2011 and, and using Brian Cardinal and, and going with unorthodox lineups. And you've you've had so many different variations over the years that speak to fitting your philosophy around whatever team you've got that year and being willing to adapt and change. And I just wonder how that evolved as you became as you grew as a coach and just understood that hey, it can't be my way or the highway. I have to take the players I have and get the most out of them. You know, when you get into coaching, you think a lot about these things. You know, and I was an assistant coach for 11 years before I became a head coach. And when I became a head coach, you know, I was in Detroit. And Detroit had been a good offensive team, but not a good defensive team. But I knew that our best chance in Detroit to get better was to become better on defense. That, that was always the most reliable formula. If you could stop people, then you could absorb bad shooting nights and still win games and those kinds of things. And my first two teams in Detroit were, were throwback teams. It was right after the, the rules had changed about zone defense and stuff like that, but people were still adjusting, you know, but we had, we had Ben Wallace and Cliff Robinson and, and, um, and Michael Curry and Stackhouse. And mm-hmm. you know, we had guys that could really defend. And so, you know, we became a team that was giving up 86 points a game, you know, and we were scoring, I don't know, 91 or 92 or whatever it was. And so we had a couple of really good years. And then, you know, as, as time went on, I ended up going to Indiana and, and, then, and then adjusting to that group of, of talented young players. 
but but things were still you know in the physical Eastern Conference style, and it was kind of inside out, you know, and stuff like that. And I had a, a really good experience in Indiana, you know, that I took a year and did broadcasting and kind of took a step away. And you know, and, and when you take a step away and see the league in a, in a broader view, you know, you can learn things about yourself um, that you don't see when you're in that crucible of the day-to-day foxhole of NBA head coaching. Well. Then Donnie Nelson knocked on our door one night in, you know, May of 2008 in, in, in Indianapolis to talk to me about possibly coming to coach in Dallas. Bang, bang, bang. Things happen quickly. You know, I talked to Mark Cuban and then I was on the way to Dallas. The mandate was, you know, we got to get we got to get this done with Dirk. We've got to get a championship, you know, within four or five years. So we won it in the third year. And then we went into the lockout of 2011. And then, you know, Mark decided not to bring back the same team. You know, he had his, he had his reasons. And look, you know, I was in my fourth year in Dallas, looking forward to being here a long time. Family was settled. <clears throat> my daughter got here when she was four years old, had a great school situation. And I, and I had to really look in the mirror and say, All right, who, who am I going to be as a coach? You know, am I going to be somebody that, like you say, is going to be like a, hey, I have a system, it's my way or the highway? Or am I going to be someone that can adapt to any group of players that I'm given and find a way to get the best out of them? And I, and I just decided really in 2011 12, coming out of the lockout, that that's, that's who I was going to be, that I was going to be very loyal to, you know, a great owner here with, with Mark and, and, and understanding that, you know, we were headed for an era where contract lengths were probably going to decrease. There were going to be more one-year deals. It was going to become more and more um, necessary to be able to adapt and to, you know, to change up and, and, and be able to fit pieces together. And for several years, you know, we had seven, eight different guys a season. You know, some coaches may have looked at it as a, as a maddening thing and a curse. I, I made the decision, hey, we're going to take this new group, whoever it is, we're going to, you know, we're going to get these guys vigilant about being Dallas Mavericks and playing in our culture and what that stands for and what my owner stands for and what our city stands for. And then, look, we're, we're going to be in a constant mode of rebuilding a championship team. You know, sometimes you got to get worse to get better. We, we had stopped patching the roster together. We decided that, hey, we got to get younger, younger assets. And look, we took a chance on guys like Dorian Finney-Smith and Maxi Kleber, and, and, and we traded for Dwight Powell and guys like that. And, and we've really invested in these guys. You know, now they're a real part of who we are as a team and we're, you know, we're, we're on the rise again. And I see, David, I see the business being a business that's an adaptive business on the one hand, yeah. but you also have, you also have to be inventive and you have to try to stay, stay in front of the need to adapt. And you've got to find ways as often as possible, you know, to be out in front. It's a business where every single day, as difficult as it is, you, you feel absolutely alive, you know, and, and uh, you know, what more could we ask for? And it's a, and it's, it's a mode of, of, of uh, existence in terms of, uh, you know, who you are and what you're doing for your work, where, where communication um is the ultimate. And I'm always working on being a better communicator. And I want to surround myself with staff that's great, great at communicating. I've got an owner who's a great communicator and a GM 
Um, and I'm, uh, and I'm always going to keep working on that. And, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm never going to, I'm never going to sit back and be con- content with everything. Cause this, this business is too dynamic and it's too great. And, and the day that, uh, you know, you're not going to bring your absolute best every single day is the day that, you know, you should step aside. As far as you guys are firmly entrenched in the playoffs, right? And um, I don't think starting the season, the regular season back up will hinder that in any way or form. Um, how do you feel about um, going into a starting back the regular season, giving these 10 seeds, 11 seeds who didn't earn it in the first 65 games a chance to sort of sneak on in? Or do you think you guys should just go straight into the playoffs if you start the season back up? You know, if we can get it started back up, playing games, um, playing more regular season games first would be optimal because, you know, it would give players a chance to, you know, re reimmerse in, in the rhythm of the season. Now, you know, look, we know that we're going to be playing, you know, in, in environments without fans, most likely, and that's going to be an adjustment. But once you get between the lines and start playing the game, you know, the game is the game. But playing some games first before going into the playoffs will will bring some, some more rhythm back into the game. The amount of time is three weeks for preparation. And then, you know, probably a couple of maybe a couple of exhibitions, maybe not, depending on the situation. And you get back into playing games. Look, you're going to have to be playing more players to, to keep minutes uh, reasonable. In my view, it would be best to play games if there was a way to get all the games in you know i think from a historical standpoint that would be great you know for the record books and stuff like that and it would be great to crown a champion in 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 2020 there have been so many great parts of this season you know um the emergence of teams like ours you know young stars getting better and better the all-star game with, with with a couple of different concepts made it really compelling to watch now we have this hiatus, which has been difficult and challenging on the one hand, but a lot of us have been able to sit back and, and really study our teams and see some things that we need to do maybe just slightly differently that could really help us. And I think if we get a chance to get back on the court, you know, we'll, we'll be able to have a great product again. And uh, the opportunity to crown a champion will be a great thing. Well, Rick, man, look, I, I hope you get that chance for, for your sake and for everyone's sake. And uh, thank you so much for your time. I know you're incredibly busy. You got you wear a lot of different hats. And uh, and I appreciate your time uh, coming on the show this week. Well, it's been a pleasure. I wish you guys well. And uh, I really enjoyed the time. Take care. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, man. All right. short, short list, and that's what I was trying to get with him was, was that I just, he does such an incredible job of, like Don Shula used to do, takes whatever he's got that year and makes the most of it. You know, some years it's middle post, some years it's three-point shooting, some years it's defense. I mean, it's just, he's Has there ever been Uh, an underachieving Rick Carlisle team? I don't think so. No, that's, that's a great point. I mean, go back and look at all of his teams across the, the way is uh, in his years of 
being a head coach, Detroit, Indian, Philly, no, I mean, Philly in Dallas. No, I mean, he's, they've always been right there, playoff teams in the mix. And then as you, as he mentioned, you know, sometimes it all breaks right for you. You get a shot, get a chance to take a shot at the whole thing. Next time we have Rick on though, I got to talk to him about the, that Pacers team because yeah, you know, Ron is somebody who I have a deep affinity for and affection for. He's from Queens like me. Played in the Catholic right. school league like I did. Went to St. John's, less than two miles from my house. I always felt a deep connection to Ron. And his growth yeah. from where he was with Rick in Indiana to where he is now is one of the best stories that's ever come out of the NBA, honestly. Um, the, just the journey that the guys had. And in his documentary, he talked about how patient Rick was with was with him. And he talks about Rick with a great affinity. Next time we got, get Rick on, we got to talk to him about the great Ron Meta World Peace Artists. Yeah, no, I, I highly recommend that doc. My buddy Johnny Sweet did that with Colleen Dominguez. I mean, it's a so great good. documentary. It's really good. But you mentioned that Indiana team. And I had to, I, I had to, I wanted to make sure we talked about this for just a minute okay. before we go. Cause, Re, cause Reggie was on those Indiana teams yes, also. Man. And y'all been, y'all been taking a couple of laps around the block with Reggie this week. <laughs> Look <laughs> around his, around his place in NBA history. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to, uh, you know, for those who haven't been paying attention, there's been some, I don't know who started this debate. Uh, Why you could fill in the I, blanks there. I don't remember how it happened, but, you know, on Twitter, there's always these flare-ups happening amongst the basketball community on Twitter. And somebody, you know, posited the question of, was Reggie a better player than Scottie Pippen? And I'm just like, and some people were saying, it's ridiculous. And people were like, oh, the notion that Reggie was not as good as Scottie is not. I'm like, guys. Reggie was a great player. He's in the Hall of Fame. Like, you know, five All-Stars. He had incredible playoff moments, including, you know, the push-off against Mike in 1998. And he delivered in big moments. Like, he was a really good player. But, like, we don't have to make this guy into something that he wasn't, you know. And just, again, shooter, scorer, was great at it. But let's face it, David, he did nothing else on a basketball court. Right. Like and and, and, and and that's not and again, it's not like he wasn't great at what he did, but he did literally no playmaking, no shot creation, basically off of the dribble. He was a good team defender, but let's not act like this guy was out there being Kawhi Leonard. Let's not get crazy out here. Like he was a good team defender. That's, you know, right. damning with faint praise right there. Like it, let's 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 get this. Let's get this under control here, you know, and I brought up the Golden State example of, look, you know, teams figured out how to deal with, not that they stopped Golden State, not that they shut them down. They figured out, you saw it with OKC, you saw it with Cleveland in the next round, um, and this is before KD, how to deal with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, who basically do the Reggie thing now. Yeah. And they are yeah. amazing at it. And let's not forget, Steph Curry can actually dribble a basket. Like, he breaks people down off the dribble. And teams figured yeah. out a way to deal with that. I'm like, look, like, Reggie Miller, as good as he is, like, that threat, that jumping off the of screens and doing it's like, we can switch screens and make sure somebody decent is guarding you one-on-one -on -one all the time. Like, I'm not saying it's easy, but locked in, good playoff yeah. defenses tend to know how to deal with that. And you and then Bulls, in that Bulls series, Reggie wasn't just destroying the Bulls all game long. Like, they were... They figured out a decent way to handle Reggie Miller. Like, again, like, a Hall of Fame player did his thing. But, like, 
why do we have to do this retroactively? And, and the thing is, David, what I think is happening, it's the modern NBA three-point people and all of this. Reggie was ahead of the curve. He was playing in the future. And it's just like, come on, man. Come on. Well, he wasn't playing ahead of the future. He was, uh, he was just elite at what he did. Yes, sir. He was an elite shooter. Um, and what I, again, all these debates, I just, if you don't tell me what era we're playing in, I can't tell you how they would have done. Right. You know what I mean? Like, to, to your point, like, uh, yeah, I mean, Reggie's numbers weren't great in an era where people may not have been great in terms of playoffs, in an era where people were scoring 85 points a game in the playoffs. Though. Yeah, by, by <laughs> you percentage, know, by gotta, possession, he definitely have, was a good, really good scorer. Yeah. You have to extrapolate that to yes, uh, an era where they're averaging 110 a game, you know. So, like, if Reggie's playing now on a, on a zero-in Five out team. <laughs> I mean, you know what yeah. I mean. Like he would be, he would be completely different. Now, conversely, though, you know, I think Clay Thompson would have been fine playing in the eighties. Oh, I mean, Clay was Clay's a big, strong kid. He can shoot. He can put the ball in the deck a little bit. Yep. You know, and so Clay would have been he fine been playing in the eighties. He would have had no problem in that era. He would have been an incredibly effective player uh, in that era because of his uh, his range and then also his ability to put the ball in the deck and then. Being able to defend, I mean, Clay really—he's a great defender. Much, <laughs> yeah, and he's much more of that '80s type of two guard. Yeah. You know, the best two guards were two way guys. Yeah. You know, like Joe Dumars was a two way yep. guy. Now he couldn't shoot it from the from the distance that those guys. Yeah, but he could now. shoot it though. But he could shoot and he it. Could yeah, handle he it. could handle it. He was a combo and he could guard. It. Yeah, right, right, and he defended the hell out of you. Yeah. So, so yeah, so a guy like Clay would. I think have no problem playing back 100%. then in that era, but conversely, Reggie would have no problem playing in this no, era. No, there's no it, doubt about no it. Reggie Miller is a Hall of Fame talent. There's no yeah. doubt about it. But I think there's tears here. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, I got you. I like got you. at the end of the you. day, when you put in, the, and it's not because I'm not somebody who believes, oh, you have to put the ball in the best player's hands. I'm just like, when defenses yeah. are locked in in the playoffs. So not only is it everybody super locked in on their assignments and their, you know, what they're being asked to do, so they're hyper-focused, um, these are the best teams, meaning the best players, yeah. applying yeah. that focus, right? Like, let's face it, it's not <laughs> the players that are on 20-win teams applying this focus. These are high-level players applying right. high level of focus to what they're doing. Um, Reggie Miller doesn't, you know, he's not... Somebody, you say, oh, he's going to rise above all of that no matter what. It's context-specific. And I think, you know, again, because Scotty wasn't a glamorous scorer, I think people underrate what he brings to the table, right? Like the the idea of being a great rebounder out of his his position, guarding multiple positions from one through four, essentially, at an elite level, right? Playmaking playmaking duties. A lot of times he was the Bulls' de facto point guard. Like yes. when Mike and Ron Harper are starting in the backcourt, Scotty's really your point guard. He's initiating at, the, for at sure. that yeah. point. Yeah. Like it's just mm-hmm. whatever. I'm not even doing this with people. Love Reggie, love <laughs> Scotty. I just, I just had to set the record straight. And again, David, as a New Yorker, I know how everything Nick related tends to get blown out of proportion. 
And right? because no, 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 no. Reggie is so affiliated with the Knicks and with Spike and those classic, and, and I'm not afraid to shame to call them classic playoff bouts that the, that the Knicks and Pacers had, I think the profile gets elevated in such a way that we, you know, we sort of outsize the, the influence on the court. And that's just, you know, that's just where I stand with that. I think I think what what happens, um, and I think it's you know I don't I don't I don't this is not a criticism of the guys that made the last dance. I think it's a much easier storyline to say it was a, it was Reggie versus Michael. You know what I mean? Like that's just cleaner. Like if you go and we talked about this, uh, we may have to, I think we talked about this with Jay last week that you know you could have very easily said Sean Kemp had a more impactful finals than Gary Payton did in 96. Some people say he had a more impactful finals than Mike. <laughs> right, right. But but it's easier, it's an easier storyline to say, to 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 talk about Gary yapping it, you know, wanting to guard Mike. Yeah. And after he started guarding Mike, they won those two games and conveniently forgetting that, that you know, Sean Kemp blew their doors off in game four. <laughs> that's, that's the reason why they won their game because they couldn't stop Sean Kemp. Right. But, it's, but the storyline is a lot cleaner when you just say, well, if it was the glove and Michael right. and Michael won again. You know what I mean? And so I, I I hear what you're saying because I think if those those Pacers teams, look, Reggie was the most important guy on those teams, don't get me wrong, but those were teams, you know, with Smiths and the Davises and with uh, Mark Jackson and with Jalen, those were teams. Yeah, they had, you had to guard all of them. 100%. You know, so – yeah, no, no question. But uh, Dave, I've been, anyway, man. Hold well, on, before we yeah. go, I, I've been asking everybody, um, yeah, about this because uh, you know, and I keep telling people like my revelation of the doc is Phil Jackson, and just like mm-hmm. you know, again, New York, again, like I feel like a lot of my thinking on Phil is so tied to his his brief unfortunate time with the Knicks, and yeah. this documentary put Phil's mastery as a coach, as a leader, into sharp focus for me. And I just came out of it with a ton of respect for Phil. I wonder, because you were there and you were living it and working it. Right. Um, what like what, what did you come out of that, Doc, having a, maybe a greater appreciation for or being like, wow, that guy was a, you know, whatever? Or like, what did you come mm-hmm. out of the Doc with? Well, you, it's funny you mentioned Phil because I, I've been telling people that, that I had forgotten you know, some of the, I'm trying not to curse, but some of the stuff Dennis pulled that I've forgotten about. Like, I did not remember. I swear to God was, I did not remember. Dude just disappeared during the finals for a day, you know, to do a w, WCW event. Yeah, you know what I mean? That's like, that's crazy. So, that's crazy. That's crazy. Like, who, who, would, who would do that during the finals? Like, who, who does that? Yeah. Right. Like, it was insane. So to your point about Phil, like Phil had to deal with shit that nobody else ever had to deal yeah. with. I don't think. Right. And, you know, on, on those teams specifically, both in Chicago and then with the Lakers. Right. I just oh don't goodness. know of another head coach that had to deal with the egos that Phil had to deal with on, on the regular for, for, you know, 10, 15 years and come, comes out of it with, you know, 11 championships. Right. I mean, that just, it just tells you that, that Phil's pretty damn good. He was pretty good as a coach. And it's a shame that you didn't get to see Phil coach in New York, because I think right. he could have, he could have been, it would have been different. He would have been limited physically. There were some things he just couldn't do physically anymore. But I think if he could have deferred, you know, like the way Bird coached the Pacers, where he was more of a CEO, like 
you know, Rick, Rick Carlisle handled the offense and the late Dick Carter handled the defense, basically. And Larry made suggestions. Right. But those two guys were really in charge of those two units on, on those Pacers teams. If Phil had been able to do that, you know, really defer to one guy on one side and one guy on the other, I think he could have done – he could have coached in New York, but maybe he just didn't want to anymore. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, he was a hell of a coach. The other thing is that I, I had also forgotten – Steve Kerr made some buckets now. <laughs> Steve, Steve Kerr made some big, big buckets. Yeah. You know what I mean? I remember the, obviously we all remember the game winner in the finals uh, in uh, game six, I guess it was the first time against uh, the jazz. But I mean, dude made some huge threes in the Indiana series. He made some huge threes on the road uh, against, against the jazz in both of the uh, championship seasons. I have forgotten that, that, that Steve really was a big time clutch shooter. And it wasn't just like one or two times. He was like there a lot, those two last two years making some shots. So um, those are a couple of things that, that were, were good kind of reminders for me, but just overall, and I think, I think Rick talked about it and I know it gets dismissed today as ring culture. And I, I understand that to a certain degree, but, and it really was about the ring. Like it really was, it really was about winning a ring, you know, and that's what everybody strived for and maybe to the detriment of, of other things. But, um, you know, if you didn't have a ring, you couldn't even be in the conversation, you know what I mean? And so, and I, like I said, I know that there's some things that weren't great about th- those times, but it just to me made the competition so much more dynamic and so, so much more vivid to me because everybody really only had one goal in mind. So. For what it's worth. But uh, anyway, I want to thank everybody uh, for listening in this week. And thank you for your comments. We we, we let we love we you have introduced the comments section um, on the on the podcast. And you guys have been very, very complimentary to us. And we appreciate it. So keep being complimentary. Keep leaving yes, those keep great being, comments yeah. for us. Tell us how great we are. <laughs> and five-star five reviews. We love that. Uh, so... Um, We appreciate it. But uh, at any rate, we'll talk to you again next week. See you.